0: Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast.
1: And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
0: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
1: trade in is not wheat.
0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
2: Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your favourite community radio station, 3CR. It's very nippy outside because uh, Melbourne is in the middle of a very nippy winter, I'll have to say. And uh, I have to put our um best wishes to all those people who, who are sleeping rough. I think about it each time, you know, as you try and keep yourself warm inside a house. Imagine what it must be like for people trying to keep themselves warm outside in a... Sleeping bag, uh, hopefully they have. Um, The uh, Solidarity Breakfast today is uh, looking at uh, a couple of issues that just will not die. The first one is the cashless debit card. We're going to speak to Jay Coonan uh, from the Anti Poverty Centre, who alert us that on June the 22nd, the uh, new cashless debit card uh, legislation Enshrines it into law and the, gives it the potential to be uh, resuscitated by any future government. Uh, anyway, Jay's going to give us a bit more information about this. It's quite a uh, heart-rending kind of a issue, this. Uh, we're going to follow that with a chat with uh, Peter Job from Declassified Australia. It's an online, uh, uh, News, uh, outlet, uh, Declassified Australia, very interesting. Uh, of course, Peter Jobs', uh, specialty area is East Timor. Uh, but, uh, he's written an article around, uh, the, uh, treatment of Modi in Australia and the stepping over the line unnecessary, uh, uh, adulation, in fact, that Albanese's approach to Modi has uh, given uh, the uh, Indian media to uh, uh, valorise Modi, uh, calling him the boss in reference to uh, Bruce Springsteen, in fact, as if it was a friendly uh, little uh, pat on the back, but which was, in fact, giving Modi uh, licence in his uh, local area uh, to be seen as a rock star presence, uh, this, of course, with the background of a rather dirty uh, human rights record, uh, is uh, quite uh, disturbing. Australia and its role in maintaining some of these uh, more unpleasant uh, leaders for whatever purpose. Anyway, we'll talk to Peter Job about that. We're going to move on to This Is The Week That Was with Kevin and uh, we're going to then go to the younger groups of activists, Ollie from the Melbourne University students who are supporting the NTU strike action at Melbourne University by creating uh, a fundraiser to support the striking members. This is coming from the Melbourne University students themselves. Uh, It's a great thing to see such solidarity. Uh, Ollie's going to talk to us a little bit about that and some of the issues that are uh, rampant at that particular institution for workers. of course the things that are happening at Melbourne University are happening in universities right across Australia and the fight's on for better wages, better conditions and secure work for workers who are maintaining the educational uh, industry in this country. Uh, We follow that with uh, a word from Nave O'Connor. She's Blockade Australia. Uh, She uh, was the person one of the people who suspended themselves across six lanes of uh, traffic to stop uh, container uh, ship operations in Melbourne. This was a coordinated effort across uh, major cities in Australia. Blockade Australia is taking it to the uh, commercial interests. uh, The future of Australia and our environment is... uh, At stake, effectively. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, a few words about uh, showing your support. Of course, last week... Was a radiothon show for Solidarity Breakfast and all the general programs on 3CR. June is the time to donate. You can donate any time. We haven't reached our target yet, but so uh, and for this show we've reached 70% of our target, so 30% more. Thank you very much to all the people who have put in. Um, just a reminder of uh, how you can go about uh, being part of the uh, general. Uh, support for this wonderful station.
3: 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
2: We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled, and focused on people rather than profits.
5: Hi gardeners, it's time to get ready for the gardening show's annual radiothon
3: extravaganza. It all takes place Sunday the 25th of June 7.30 to 10 when you can help your favourite gardening show grow. Stay tuned and
5: call in on 03 for great deals on organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers,
3: magazine subscriptions and new green focused book titles. Or make a tax-deductible donation today and support The Gardening Show by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate.
5: Dig deep for the 2023 3CR Gardening Radiothon Show. 7.30
3: to 10, Sunday the 25th of June.
5: We need your support to keep great gardening radio on the airwaves. I love trees with all their lovely leaves.
6: Lifting up their branches to the sky high.
2: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre here to talk to us about something that's really quite disturbing. We've been following this issue for a long time. We thought that when uh, the Labor government got in that we would see the back of cashless debit card. Can you explain to my listeners what the cashless debit card is and uh, was and is? Jay? Yeah,
7: good morning. Um, so the cashless debit card quarantines uh, people's payments who are on Social Security, um, and it takes a, a certain percentage of that onto the card, and then uh, the, a small percentage, about 20%, puts it into their respective bank account um and this has been primarily targeted at you know first nations communities in the northern territory queensland and under the coalition they expanded it to certain areas in sejuna in the goldfields in wa and in the Pilbara region um and when the Labor government came into power in 2022 they ran on a platform where they said that they would make it voluntary uh the cashless debit card voluntary so Uh, That led a lot of people to believe that income management as a whole would uh, cease to exist. Um, However, that was certainly not the case as we have seen this week.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the cashless debit card process was coercive. Uh, It uh, also was run outsourced to a private company, Indu. Uh, Does Indu still exist?
7: Indu certainly still does exist. So another part of the platform that Labor ran on was getting the private sector out of, you know, the social security system, particularly around cash- cashless welfare. Um, and, you know, a lot of their supporters and even Labor themselves referred to it as the Inju Card. Now, through this process, what they've done is with the cashless debit card is they have ended that. However, what they've replaced it with is called the Enhanced Income Management uh, Card. And Indu is still involved in that process. They were awarded a contract um, in order to, you know, help the the government um, print the cards and work on the digital, uh, you know, the payment infrastructure. Um, however, what they what the government did is took the phone services off Indu and gave it to Services Australia but injury still has a large stake in this and uh, was recently awarded a contract for it, so they haven't removed them at all.
2: Yeah, and uh, the issues... Uh, we'll go through this before we get to what actually has happened uh, on the 22nd of June in Parliament uh, with their present legislation, because what was happening, and people should remember that there was always a capacity for people to voluntarily ask to have their income be managed uh, because they may have had issues that made it impossible for them to be uh, be uh, um, self managing. That's correct, right?
7: Yes, that is correct. Uh, people could voluntarily enter the card um, if they so choose, but you know those voluntary take ups were very very small. Yeah, that's right, as outdated, you'd expect. Yeah.
2: Yeah, as you'd yeah. expect. Uh, and so, you know, it's an altruistic sort of support mechanism, right? Uh, but, uh, what we're t- looking at, uh, with the cashless debit card, it targeted indigenous, uh, communities unfairly. Correct?
7: Yes yeah it certainly did um because in 2007 the basics card which uh is being transitioned now to the enhanced income management card through this bill uh was set up in the in 2007 under which was you know uh, i think it was the anniversary for the nt uh, this week um yep. and yeah, uh, it was set up, uh, in order to specifically manage the social security payments of First Nations people. And the cashless debit coverage the coalition introduced is just a hangover from that as well.
2: Yeah, and and it had a whole lot of... There were a whole lot of lies attached. I mean, it was quite ra- racist in the sense that they were saying that it was uh, in order to protect uh, children uh, so that they got food on the table and, and da, da 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 but then finding that uh, people who had no children were also having their uh, card, their, their income quarantined.
7: Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the conditions is somebody who is on a long uh, long term on a Social Security payment qualifies to be placed onto the card. And now, you know, it, for somebody who, you know, might have a disability unrecognised, who's, on, you know, been on a you know a working age payment or a job seeker, for example, for a long period of time, would be placed on the card. And that's, you know, so based off of, you know, labour market discrimination and social discrimination against, you know, disabilities, uh, people are just ending up on this card and they... They're being refused, you know, access to their own finances because of it. It is just a, a broadly discriminatory program targeted at First Nations communities. Um, but anybody else who is within its capture, whether it's in Shepparton or Blacktown in New South Wales, who uh, you know is discriminated against for a variety of other reasons, uh, is also uh, you know targeted by this program.
2: Now, this is a pittance. So what we're talking about is uh, a, a direct uh, classist attack on poor people for being poor. Uh, I went to a thing. I, I went to a thing last night where it was pointed out that our, uh, in Australia, the lucky country, the social security uh, payments in Australia are. In a just above or just hovering above Russia and Albania.
7: Yeah, we have one kind of. Uh, I think yeah. In in terms of where Australia's payments sit, like particularly among the, you know, uh, economic, uh, you know, biggest economies in the world, we are we have the lowest, pretty much, um, and you know, obviously in the last budget, the the government did uh, increase them by the the smallest of amounts. Um, but that's still, you know, it's still, we're still amongst the lowest in the world. So the issue with the card as well is all people on social security payments, it's not that they're bad with their money, it's that they just don't have enough money. And
6: obviously <laughs> right. that,
7: that, that issue is now, you know, just rapidly growing because we're seeing rents just skyrocket, the cost of living is, it, you know, exceeding, you know, people on, you know, waged income, it's exceeding their capacity. So people who are on, you know uh three hundred odd dollars a week that's it's just it's just totally unlivable and it is at a crisis point, but you know a lot of people in parliament just don't understand or respect you know the crisis for what it is
2: and we're going we're going to uh, cover some past um, uh ground because uh people who are on very low incomes have become very good at uh, and I mean, I'm not even talking about people, I, I can't even go to the uh, people who have got children and responsibilities for other people. That's just heartbreaking. But, uh, become very good at managing, right? And, uh, so what it means is that, uh, by quarantining the money, the very small amounts of money, they can't go to secondhand, uh, dealers, they can't go and, uh, you know, like, they have a great deal of uh, problems with renting places because they're not in control of the amount of money that they've got or its flow, that sort of stuff. It's uh, quite a criminal uh, burden that's being placed on people.
7: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that was one of the biggest issues uh, that people were reporting uh, under the cashless debit card Um was that, you know, their rental payments were coming out late. Uh, their, you know, they weren't able to manage their money as easily when when it came to, you know, paying um, for their rent on time and even contacting the company to try and resolve some of these issues, try and have more, more of their quarantine income released in order to have access to cash to pay for certain things like white goods. Um, you know, it just wasn't possible because they were like, well, no, you can't do that um and maybe and it's another thing that you know maybe not a lot of people in city areas uh think about too often but cash is you know a lot more important in a lot of regional and rural areas where you know some of that digital infrastructure hasn't caught up particularly with the expansion of this program is that it didn't reach a lot of um you know businesses so certain markets or uh You know, school fates, for example, is another big one that we heard, you know, people heard from parents is that uh, they weren't able to have the cash to, you know, buy fruits and vegetables from markets. Or when they go for a family outing, you know, they would have to refuse their kids who, you know, kids don't, you know, understand what is going on. So they would become obviously upset and angry that they couldn't, you know, get like that You know, sort of mm. troll or something, and cause a scene, and it was obviously very uh, embarrassing and emotionally traumatizing for the people who were subjected
2: to it. It's also ghettoizing, isn't it? Especially in country areas. Yeah. I mean, people are so so, um, you know, uh, aware of people's economic uh, principles, and it's in in uh, and it, what it's doing is. <coughs> I- enforcing the notion that uh, being poor makes you a different type of person.
7: Yeah, it it certainly does. Like, I mean, the, the thing that underpins this is uh, in a 2020 uh, Senate debate, Lydia Thorpe pointed out that particularly its targeting of First Nations communities is just the return, the rations program that existed, yeah. um, you know, in the early to mid-20th century, and in a form, it, it, it is it in is. a form uh, income rationing. It is exactly that.
6: Yeah, it's um, disgraceful. And
7: it's a race. It's a it's predicated on being a racist program. Um, and after the basics card in two thousand and seven, the next iteration that came about under Tony Abbott was recommended by none other than Andrew Forrest, whose interest is in you know dispossessing you know First Nations communities of their land for mineral extraction.
2: Yeah, so, yeah, it's
6: outrageous. You know, it,
7: yeah, it is it is it is just a blatant uh tool in the armory of colonization um and I think that you know and that's just its purpose, and we're seeing that continue under the Labour government, who claimed that they'd be making it voluntary.
2: So tell us what happened on June the 22nd, now that we've covered the ground of the past. I was so shocked when I read the release, and I would really like to understand why why the Anti-Poverty Centre is so aggrieved.
7: Yeah, look, um, so prior to the election, when Labour were running on a campaign of making it voluntary, we were only one of the few groups who pointed out that their, their policy, their party policy was not to make income management uh, as a whole voluntary um, and that it would continue under them. Um, and, you know, we were you know, told that we were wrong. Um, you know, we were, we were slightly attacked over it and basically lied to when we raised any issues with it. What, so, you're just
2: party poopers?
7: Yeah, we <laughs> are a bunch of party poopers. Yeah, a
2: bunch of party poopers.
7: <laughs> um, so when the election rolled around and one of the first bills that uh, the government put forward was to end the castle's debit card, which, you know, great. So those well, communities it's fantastic, in yeah, yeah in Sejuna, in the Goldfields and in the Pilbara, uh, for example, they they would those sites ended immediately ended immediately with the transition of that bill. Um, and they were allowed to, you know, go off the card. And as they found, I think it was upwards of 90% or more uh, left the card. Uh, and there was only literally a handful based of Senate estimates numbers of people who chose to remain on the card in those sites. But what they didn't do when they ended the Casas Debit card is end the Basics card, which, you know, you might remember mentioning that started yeah. in 2007. So that's, that's focused... Predominantly in the Northern Territory, in Cape York, and then small locations in Shepparton and Blacktown, for example. That that was to continue. So you know, we call called them out and said, well, you know, if you're claiming that you're going to make it voluntary, um, you need to do this. But you know, that's the thing. They never said that they were going to make income management voluntary, and we knew that they were going to. They were not going to make income management voluntary. So they technically didn't lie when they said that. You know, they would end the cashless debit card, which they did, but they kept income management in form in those places. So, you know, fast forward to this week, the bill that they they've put forward um, is to transition the basics card into a new enhanced income management, which is, has all the same qualities as the cashless debit card, but it's run by Services Australia and not run by an outsourced company. However, the outsourced company is designing all the infrastructure for the Enhanced Income Management Card. And so this bill as well, uh, not only was it doing that, it was also removing uh, a sunset date from the legislation, which what that means is that uh, the Senate, by a certain date, has to debate and either reinstate the legislation or, or to end it. Um, And so they've removed that. And so what that means now is income management prior to this week always had to be debated and always had to be renewed. Um, And it could have theoretically been removed if they weren't supported in the Senate for it. But they've removed that entirely now, which means that income management is uh, permanently ingrained in the Social Security Act um, pending somebody removes it. But another third thing that came along with that was the power that already existed with the social services minister to expand uh, the cashless debit card to different areas around the country. They've now given that power within income management. So they've made it permanent. They've transitioned the cashless debit card to take over the cashless debit card model to take over the, the basics card model. And, uh, yeah, the minister can you know expand it at will, and there's no end date in sight.
2: So what you're saying is that, um, I, I mean, it says here that uh, powerful people within communities will be able to mm. request the program with no consent from individuals affected. Who are these powerful people? Are you talking about Indigenous communities?
7: So in these communities, um, particularly around the Castle debit card debate, there was uh, a lot of uh, people tied to, you know, the, particularly in WA, the, with mining interests. Yep. Um, so a lot of those, like the Laverton Shire, for one example, um, all of these groups, you know, they're, they're backed up by the mining lobbies, so and they've been very much uh, in favour of the cards. So, you know, when it came to Senate submissions, the, the only people who were promoting these cards were all, you know, conservative leaders within communities. And so what this means is you know, under the the Labour Party's model is that, you know, it's voluntary in the sense that the community side, not the, oh in, the sides, not the individual. So what we could see is these old castles debit card sites being turned into mandatory income management sites. Because the, you know, more conservative leaders of those communities, the more conservative not-for-profit organisations that operate out of those or non-government operations outside of those communities are calling for it, and not specifically the individuals who will be uh, impacted by this program. So we don't know at this stage because the government has it claims to be continuing its consultation. Um, what that will look like or how they will consult or, you know, how people are going to go onto this program. But theoretically speaking, uh, from how it's operated in the past, is that, you know, I you could see communities like the Junior, the communities in the Goldfields and communities in the Pilbara going back on the card, you know, under a Labour government because of the programs that they themselves have set up.
2: Right, uh, And, uh, oh, God, it's so cathca <laughs> Yeah.
7: Yeah, it most certainly is. It's, it's, it, They've, they've intentionally done it this way in order to, you know, uh, com- basically confuse their voters uh, into believing that they've done the right thing, and so that their voters can now turn around and go, well, well, you know, the communities want this. But, you know, that's one thing to say, you know, like what is a community is many things and it's made up of many people. So to say that a community wants this is a blatant lie. So it's, it's yeah, it's going to be interesting to say the least, uh, how this process actually plays out over the next, you know, nine to 12 months when and if they begin to make. Uh, clear how their process is to install this card into the communities, but theoretically, uh, the minister now has the power uh, to expand the card anywhere across the continent if a community deems it necessary.
2: But but they have said that aged pensioners can uh, breathe a sigh of relief because That's, they're not going to be right. targeted this time.
7: Yes, they, they uh, under their campaign as well. They said they they called it the uh, the pension. Uh, Pension Castles Card, I can't remember now, but they were intentionally uh, predicating this uh, a campaign on saying that, you know, pensioners would be put onto the card. And uh, so they put in specific legislative requirements to ensure that no pensioner would be put on the card, despite that not being the case under uh, the iterations before. So there was pensioners were never going to be impacted, but they created a fake... Uh, care campaign in order to make pensioners think that, in order to win votes from areas where they wanted that, to then put it in the legislation that they would do that. So it was a very, very cynical, planned uh, deception that the Labor government ran under.
2: Yeah, um, I know that this is uh, being uh, a bit uh, what, uh, ingenuous of me, but what, what um, why, why are they so in love with this? What is their problem? Why can't people actually just look after their own pittance?
7: Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's just been cultured into the Australian political class at this point. Um, One of the biggest uh, advocates for, um, you know, the cashless debit cards and, um, you know, now the enhanced income management, you know, is, you know, Uh, campaigning with the voice uh, whose name escapes me right now Um, so you know it has been advocated by certain indigenous people it's been advocated by uh, you know wealthy mining interests and it's just this capture of you know the the political class and they, they they're you know, they believe it's a good thing because certain communities ask for it or or want it, but also at the same time, I think they're they're also very scared because, you know, uh, the coalition will whip it up into a frenzy if they were were to remove it. uh, The coalition would obviously run a massive campaign on it. and, And that's what they're scared of. They think it'll lose them votes. But, you know, unfortunately, in order to do the right thing, you need a bit of the political courage. And I don't think that this... This government uh, has much political courage when it comes to fighting for the right cause. The more likely to fight against the right cause in order to, you know, cynically think that it's uh, in, you know, underpinning and emboldening their vote.
2: Well, you know the thing about it is is that people have voted quite clearly that they don't want the cashless debit card they don't want uh, mining to completely destroy the environment and uh, a whole range of things, but this seems to be something that uh, uh, is just uh, decide- they, you know they just need a public they just need a public relations um, campaign to muddy the waters so that people don't really know that that's what's really going on. Anyway, that's just me yeah. being grumpy. <laughs>
7: no, I think, I think it's very fair and understandable. for people would be very, very grumpy and upset over this because it was a deceptive campaign that they run on. Um, and, yeah, they, they lied.
2: OK, thanks very much, Jay, for talking to us this morning.
7: No worries. Thanks for having me on.
2: That was Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre talking to us about the zombie... Cashless debit card. You're on three CR with on solidarity breakfast with Annie. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is three CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons.
5: Uh, We are uh, such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop, and it's going to, not going to stop while well, you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside?
7: Tune in to 3CR during NADOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Fillers Frost Centre, Barwon Prison. Fullen Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison. Margaret Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison to hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. 3CR digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app.
2: For more information, head to our website 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the Bars. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And Peter Job is actually there. G'day Peter, how are you?
4: Good morning, Annie. How are you?
2: Good. Uh now the reason for why we're talking to you is because of your article in Declassified Australia. Uh, You take exception to the uh, way uh, our Prime Minister handled the visit of Modi but uh, from India over the Quad. uh, Could you give us a little bit of a background about the uh, general understanding of Modi's behaviour in his own country, in fact?
4: Well, despite the reception that Modi is presently getting in the United States, uh, the US State Department itself has... um, Uh, documented extreme human rights abuses under Modi. Um, These include um, extrajudicial killings uh, by the government or its agents, arbitrary detention and arrest, political prisoners, uh, torture and degrading treatment, and interference with the freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Uh, There's also been violence against uh, journalists who uh, crossed Modi and his uh, party's position, um, and he's introduced uh, legislation that discrim- discriminates particularly against Muslims and other um, religious and ethnic minorities. Um, he, of course, the US State Department is not alone in doing that. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty Internationalists have also condemned his behaviour and what has been happening under his government, including uh, extraditional kill- killings, arbitrary detention, um, Modi was also accused of complicity in the 2002 Gujarat anti-Muslim riots. It's quite ironical, uh, given the kind of reception he's getting at uh, the United States at the moment, that for 10 years he would not have been allowed to travel to the United States due to the fact that he was under a diplomatic boycott due to what has been fairly well com- uh, documented to be his um, complicity in the Gujarat uh, Massacres when he was first minister of Gujarat uh, twenty years ago,
2: and this is uh, him as the uh, leader of the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, and of course these are ultra nationalist Hindus, uh, and this is uh, his uh, rise and rise to power uh, does actually seem to be hauntingly similar to Hitler
4: uh well is, is is certainly i wouldn't i would not say that india at the moment is in the same situation uh, as germany under hitler but certainly it's a, a, a it is a very concerning um situation for minorities and for anyone who values democracy and human rights he has undermined uh, india's india has never been a perfect country of course but it has had a secular tradition where um And he has certainly undermined that, and the human rights have significantly deteriorated under him.
2: Let's turn to uh, the role that Albanese, Australia, has played in this chess game that has allowed Modi to be uh, guilt, guilted, you know, but with as in gold. Um, shiny, bright in the firmament of international politics?
4: Well, Prime Minister Albanese's reception of Modi goes well beyond what is normal diplomatic protocol for even countries with whom we have normally good relations. Um, He took part in what was effectively an election rally for Modi one that was aimed at his domestic audience and was broadcast widely within India. When Antony Albanese stood up in that stadium and called Modi the boss, uh, he provided um, ammunition for the Modi's campaign uh, back home, his domestic agenda. And, of course, it was taken at face value by many. Uh, uh, of course, by using the term the boss, he was making a reference to Bruce Springsteen, Uh, It's quite clear, if you look at the Indian media, however, that that, it wasn't interpreted that way. It was taken as face value. The BJP has used it in his campaigning. Um, Now, when that happens, um, I should say that's not the first time Australia has um, supported autocrats and undermined democracy or moved towards democracy in a country. Um, My main area of research, of course, is... um, Indonesia and East Timor. Under the Hato regime, the Australian government strongly supported Sahato and spoke in his favour when he was also engaged in severe human rights abuses. Uh, Indonesian dissidents uh, later recounted the impact that had on them, that undermined their situation and made them more vulnerable. There's a bit of a myth that uh, dictators are not vulnerable to foreign opinion. They very much are. When Australia supported Zahato, that undermined the the dissident democratic uh, forces that were trying to campaign against him. It made it easier for Zahato to uh, uh, suppress dissidents. And that's exactly the same as what's happening uh, under um, Modi. When Antony Albanese stands up and lords uh, Modi in extraordinary terms that are not usual for even some of our closest allies. That undermines um, political dissidence and and political opposition in India. It makes it easier for Modi to enforce his agenda, which is a very repressive agenda. It sends a message to Modi that he can engage in human rights abuses, those well-documented human rights abuses, and that will not be an issue in the international arena and that he will not be held accountable to them. And so it makes repression in um, India worse. That is also true, of course, of Anthony Albanese's visit to India earlier this year. Not the visit itself, of course. You can't say that there's anything wrong with that. But the way that... um, Anthony Albanese went round to a series of stadiums and took part in effectively what were campaign rallies on behalf of Modi to support his domestic agenda.
2: Yeah, uh, the um, interesting thing is it's hard to work out if uh, Albanese is naive or if perhaps it's dovetailing into the courting of uh, Modi into the revived Quad. Um, agenda. Do you have anything to say on that? Well,
4: um, Modi, uh, Mr Albanese clearly sees Modi as very important in Australian diplomatic relations. The court, of course, is, is something that goes back a few years. It was originally established in 2007. It was the brainchild of, of then-Japanese um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, But it was revived more recently, and only in 2021 did it become a a leaders' meeting. Now, getting uh, India on side uh, against China is part of the US uh, agenda to uh, favour Western interests over above uh, um, Chinese interests. Uh, As you probably know, there's been a lot of what you could almost say is hysteria against China in recent years. I find it quite ironic because 15 years ago it was something the opposite. I was campaigning about human rights in China uh, when um, uh, Hu Jintao addressed Australian Parliament. So I was at a rally and I was called, I, uh, I was called very naive for campaigning about Chinese human rights. Now I find myself, without <laughs> having changed my position, uh, as not campaigning for China but pointing out the, the very dangerous way in which. Uh, Australia and other nations, and many in the media, are ramping up against uh, tensions against uh, against China in what could only be called a historical historical manner. Yeah. Uh, now we've got to understand that uh, uh, India is different to the United States; its agenda is not the same. Nevertheless, that does feed into the U.S.-Australia agenda, and it is destabilising. It is encouraging what uh, international. Uh, relations theorists uh, tend to call a security dilemma. When, when one country rallies at arms against another, that causes the that same country to do the same and ramps up tensions. That's what happened before the First World War. And there's a grave danger that could happen now.
2: Yeah. Well, there you go. Thank you very much for talking to us through this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty worrying, worrying stuff, isn't it?
4: It is, and it's unnecessary. Uh, We want good relations with the Indian Indian people. India is an important country. It deserves a prominent place in the world stage, and we uh, should be friendly with the Indian Indian people. But that does not mean um, the kind of deference that Albanese showed to one particular leader. Uh, We don't know the future of India. It's not inevitable that Modi will be in power Forever, and that the decay of Indonesia, oh, sorry, um, I meant to say Indone- uh, Indian democracy is not inevitable. Uh, the, we want friendship with the Indian people, but that calling a dictator and an autocrat the boss in the way that uh, our Prime Minister did uh, is not good for Australia and is unnecessary.
2: Thanks for talking to us this morning, Peter.
4: Thanks very much,
2: Annie. And uh, I thought I might uh, play Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. And uh, on a quick note, that uh, if you did see that uh, film, uh, Air, which was uh, the, uh, what is it, you'd have to say, the, um, uh, the dream story of Nike, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, where they, they begin, the birth story of Nike. Uh, one of the uh, people in it says that, uh, he used to drive along really fast on the freeway with, uh, uh, born in the USA really loud and sing along, and it took him years to realize that what the song is really about. Is a man who goes off, a working class person who goes off to the Vietnam War and comes back completely dispossessed. (laughs) And uh, so, uh, in a sense, it's a fitting song to be playing after an interview of that nature.
8: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on digital and online,
0: 3CR Radical Radio.
1: A week's solidarity breaky team, listener, when logic ran riot in the debate over housing or non-housing, depending how we look at it, with the property industry and therefore the government expressing their concern for struggling renters by telling us a rent freeze would hurt struggling renters. Struggling renters would struggle even more unless their rent kept increasing more and more. All this as Big Supremo Anthony allbing showed the concern honed by being raised in public housing by a single mum. Not sure we knew that. He keeps it to himself. Public housing by a single mum by suddenly finding billions for social and affordable housing. You mean public housing built, owned and managed by the public purse, Anthony? I mean, uh, yes, giving the states the money uh, to give the housing to the social and community housing industry and the affordable housing industry. Uh, governments long ago abandoned public housing, knowing the housing solutions lie with the private sector, the market, uh, which has worked a treat, Anthony. A trait. Anthony attacked the uncooperative Greens for being uncooperative, for standing in the way of the market solving the housing crisis. Uh, but, But, Anthony, hasn't the market caused the problem in the first place? We have to agree with Anthony for the fine balance in this debate displayed by the ABC, for instance, representing the mainstream media generally, highlighted how the poorest of the poor, how the homeless, how struggling renters and those unable to purchase a home will benefit from this sudden discovery of billions. It interviewed the Property Profits Council, which informed us the windfall was a win-win, while rubbing its hands together excitedly, and the Community Housing Industry Profits Association, note industry, which was thrilled that it could do its bit for, say, the homeless. Uh, certainly as long as, as long as? As long as they can afford it, but but they haven't got any money then we can't help them. Look, we feel for them, and we would be more than happy to help them when and if they have money. Uh, Then we must have real public housing. Good heavens, no, that that is our role, the social and community housing profit sector. Our role is to provide for those in housing crisis uh, as long as they can afford it. Exactly. It gives them an incentive. The social and community housing industry was also one of the loudest voices attacking the rent freeze proposal. Go on, what a surprise. And yet, this was interpreted by the commentariat as proving the proposal would hurt struggling renters. On same in the, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now department, headline, landlord tax hike to hurt renters. No, no, not that. That's normal. No, no, similar headline in the True Blue Aussie capitalist review: affordability crisis a risk for for struggling renters. I hear you say for struggling home buyers. <laughs> None of the above. No, it's worse. A risk for stockland, Mervac, J P Morgan. Oh no, no! Don't we feel for them? Don't our hearts bleed? Got to admit, Lister, we really have misjudged the Caring Business Class Party, suggesting falsely over many years, many, many years, it was anti-worker, anti-evil unions, bent over backwards to assist the filthy rich Caring Business Class get filthy richer. First signs of our misjudgment we reported two weeks ago, when former Caring Business Class Relations Minister Michaelia Kosh the workers attacked the socialists for allowing workers to fall further behind the cost of living, enlightening us that for 10 years the caring business class Hayseed and Sheepshit Coalition had fought its guts out to ensure workers maintained their living standards, which on one level, of course, is actually true. And Macaulay's apparent conversion on the road to the opposition benches was confirmed last weekend supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer at a caring business class conference of some sort speaking in front of big slogans, standing up for hard-working true blue Aussies. So there. We have judged them wrongly for years. Years, because they have proven posthumously my long departed father wrong. For one of his favourite comments was Menzies will grind the workers into the dust. Obviously a slander of poor old pig iron bob. McAida is one of several women this week proving the contention we need more women in Parliament, in boardrooms, in positions of so-called power, for the sensitivity, the emotion, the feelings, the compassion they bring that will make the world a kinder place. As following her runaway victory last week in the Feminist Solidarity Award for her compassionate attack on an emotional Lydia Thorpe over sexual assault claims, No notions that appalling Hoonson doubled up this week with the Racial Solidarity Award after the same Lydia Thorpe talked about the terradaleous non-people's 65,000-year connection to the land. That appalling reacting with a beautifully sensitive 65,000 years, I don't care, I don't care. What about my connection to the land? Great point, that appalling, strong argument. Not sure what the connection is now. It used to be a fish and chip shop. And sensitivity and compassion oozing from Reserve Losses Bank Deputy Supremo Michelle Bulldust as she declared we'll all be better off with a massive increase in unemployment. We desperately need 140,000 job losses. Although Michelle didn't quite explain how the 140,000 doll budgets would be better off. Well, no, no, I suppose she did. We need all those unemployed to control inflation, meaning they'll be able to buy more with the cornucopia they sponge on from the public purse. Because if the inflation rate drops, we can guarantee landlords and the great supermarkets will reduce their rents and prices in line with... Yet despite this advantage for all of us, evil unions reacted to Michelle's compassionate call for lots of dole bludgers by claiming the reserve losses bank is asking workers to pay for inflation caused by caring employers, the landlords and the great supermarkets, again showing evil unions place barriers in the way of the common good. Given the compassion Michelle as a woman brought to this issue, the mind boggles at how many unemployed bank supremo Philip Lay workers low would have dominated. It's not worth thinking about. And yet another prominent woman, Christine Hellgates, raced away with the Love Your Consistency Award of the Week. Remember, Christine got the chop as supremo of Trivial Aussie Post, after then-Big Supremo Scummo was upset, she gave executives some watches as a bonus. If she'd given them a million each, it wouldn't have, would not have been okay. But Christine also opposed moves by the government to privatise the troubler Post-Parcels Division. The big money earner these days, it would be a disaster, she argued vehemently. Well, these days, Christine runs Don't Pay the Toll Truck for off and. What do you know? She is telling the government it must privatise the True Blue Aussie Post Parcels Division and allow her new company to get it stout into the public trough. What a difference a new boardroom makes. Christine, your Love, Your Consistency Award is on its way. Oh, and I've had this brainwave. Did you notice the cost of sinking with the sunken Titanic is Titanic? up to twice the amount we are hoping to raise from our non-filthy rich listeners in the current radiothon. The filthy rich forking out three to four hundred grand Australian for a ticket to eternity. So my brainwave... Let's talk some filthy rich of the filthy rich entrepreneur, and don't forget we have enormous influence with filthy rich of the filthy rich entrepreneurs, talk some into building a giant submersible capable of carrying hundreds, offer to collect the ticket price for the hundreds of filthy rich of tourists, as they called, call them, and pack them off to the bottom of the briny. To eliminate any risk will disengage the resurface button before they descend. Ingenious, what? You may listen, but I can't see any flaws in the plan other than the ocean floor. Last week, we gave the Courage Under Fire Award to the Socialists, who this week again displayed their courage by backing off plans for stronger tax disclosure information from the multinationals after yet another caring business class lobbying campaign. And the so-called Socialist Left faction backed off a strong motion at their state conference at taking the Forkis deal after Anthony Albanese said he would take no notice of it. And the usual, we can't embarrass the leader argument after the leader heads them off at the pass. Anthony pointing out the Socialist Party is democratic, and that's why he would ignore a majority decision. But as a compromise, the Socialists may how's this for outrageous, recognize a Palestinian non-people, non-state state, state, wherever that might be, causing apoplexy in the Zionist lobby, with one Zionist attacking state supremo, the pejorative Dan, for allowing the so-called socialist left to have the numbers by preventing branch stacking, admitting I would have thought that the right only held sway for years through branch stacking. Meanwhile, Finally, over in the non-people's non-land, Zion continued to slaughter and take more and more non land claiming the occupied territories are not occupied, but disputed. Uh, Disputed? Absolutely. The Palestinian non-land non-people dispute our right to take their land to control their lives. What more proof do you need to know they are all terrorists? Unlike the non terrifying, peace loving Zion train killers protecting liberty, freedom, and democracy. Good morning.
2: Yes, good morning, Kevin. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we've just been listening to Kevin's roundup of the week. Very incisive, I'd have to say. And on the line, we've got Ollie, who's one of the uh, Melbourne University students who have been vocally in support of staff who have been taking strike action for a number of months now. It started in May. G'day uh, Ollie, how are you?
8: Hi, good morning, doing well. How are you going?
2: Good. Now it's really nice to see students at Melbourne University supporting the teachers who have been getting a pretty raw deal.
8: Yeah, I mean it's been really inspiring to be talking to students on campus over the past few months. It's sort of looks like we're going to be entering into a pretty long campaign, like one where it's going to be a big task to keep mobilising students again and again. But the reception has been, I think, some of the best that we've ever had on campus trying to talk politics with students. There's a real sort of organic connection people draw around the campus and management and the conditions with our staff they see every day when they go to
2: class. Yeah, so uh, what's uh, the students' understanding of why um, a thousand NTU members went on strike May the third?
8: Well, from what I've heard, there's two key demands, and they're the ones we're bringing up a lot. The first one is just about pay. It's like clear that we're in the middle of like the fastest growing rental and housing crashes in Australian history, and unprecedented cost of living crisis, and the pay deal that's being offered to faculty right now is just not good enough. So they're asking for a uh, pay rise that's in line with inflation or 15%, I believe, whichever is higher, but it's, you know, the university is one of the largest employers in the country in the largest sectors, so these sort of minimum demands about pay are really great. The other one's are around casualization. So over half of the faculty on our campus are casualized. It's basically like a hospitality or retail business where they're on short-term or sessional contracts and fired every six months and have to reapply for their own jobs. So, We've been talking to people who've been working on contracts for 10 to 12 years and have never been offered a permanent position.
2: Why are students getting into, involved in this?
8: Well, I think one thing we've been saying a lot is that staff working conditions are student learning conditions. It's pretty clear when you go to your class and your tutor has been, you know, marking for far longer than they're paid, has been chasing up emails they haven't been, you know, scheduled in to do. When they're taking far too many classes and actually having to work on the side as well, the quality of your marking, the quality of your ed- education goes down. I think there's a pretty, like I was saying before, I think it's pretty natural to students to say that actually management at this university doesn't care about your education. This modern university has basically become a degree factory where they're trying to take as much money as possible from you, pay the VC's salary, and not. Your tutors to actually teach and give you a better
2: education? Yeah, so the quality of education is going down as you experience it.
8: Uh, absolutely. I, I think it's been a process that's happened over a very long period of time, but yeah, acutely at Unimelb.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, they advertise themselves as, and uh, many of the people who get in there uh, actually f- uh, feel it, obviously, that they're the, the special chosen few.
8: Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And the university, you know, doesn't let that gloss down. They'll take any chance they can to say that they're, you know, a progressive and sort of, you know, forward-thinking institution. But, it, you know, it only takes one look at the sort of face of a tutor on a Monday morning after they've been, you know, working non-stop for weeks and weeks to realize that we're actually just a product to them that they can buy and sell.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting because, of course, being in insecure work, it means that uh, they aren't paid uh, during the uh, breaks.
8: Yeah. I mean, the whole insecure work, like the method of forcing these workers onto this contract and sessional work is just purely designed to be exploitative. There's, you know, conditions around getting marked, like getting paid for marking by word count. There's all of these extra caveats. Obviously, if you're trying to get a mortgage or like a loan on a house, these contracts just aren't good enough. Um, especially if it actually is your full-time work and something you've been doing like i've said before for for a decade
2: well it's actually the... it's interesting because as a student um uh, it is a career to be part of an academic uh, uh the academic world and the amount of money that he, and effort that's actually put into uh, uh becoming an academic is all a personal journey. It's got nothing to do, you know, there's no outlay for the university.
8: To become faculty?
2: Yeah, to become part of, uh, mm-hmm. to be an academic. So, I mean, this, this has a knock-on effect for any student who thinks that this might be a career path for them.
8: Yeah, totally. I mean, this is something that happened within, my think, first few weeks coming onto email. You have all these ideas about the, the academy and you know what that means, and it becomes pretty clear that UniMelb is a business like any other that's run for profit and like at obscene levels as well.
2: Uh, it's interesting you call it UniMelb. It's not even it's not even University of Melbourne anymore, right?
8: <laughs> hilarious! So I spent too long talking <laughs> to students maybe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, the other th- uh, so uh, the University of Melbourne um, NTU National T- uh, Tertiary Education Union Strike Committee passed an official motion of endorsement for your fundraising activities, and that's why we're talking. We want to know uh, about this particular um, support that you guys have put in place.
8: Yeah, totally. So the strike fund is something that's been put together by the students in the Unimelb Student Support Staff Strike campaign, so we have a GoFundMe that we're asking people to put some money towards to help our faculty fight for our education, fight for their conditions. Um, you can get to that at tinyurl.com slash Fund. That's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash melbournestrikefund. Or you can find our socials at Unimelb Students for Staff Strikes. That's usually a number four instead of the word. We are.
2: Well, more strength to your arm, Molly. Good on you.
8: Cheers. Thanks
2: a bunch, Annie. No worries. And we've just been speaking to Ollie, who's from UniMelb, student support, the uh, staff strikes campaign group. And as he said, they have been um, uh, putting money where their mouth is by creating a Go uh, Me campaign to uh, support those workers who have been doing strike action at Melbourne University. Uh, This is not the only university across uh, Australia. There is a concerted national campaign for better conditions, 80% secure work and above inflation pay offer, better uh, parental leave, work from home rights, paid gender affirmation leave. And in um, UniMelb's case, First Nation employment targets, management has shown little willingness to move on any of these key claims, and uh, this is why staff are preparing for possibility that they will have to take serious, sustained industrial action to win the contracts that they deserve. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, hopefully we'll get a result.
9: Don't you hear the bell? signal the warning? Here comes the storm, best we be gone. Out to the street where the legions are forming. I heard the call, more than ever before. If we just scream at our screams, we will forget what it means. so much deeper than that there are brothers and sisters whose burdens are stacked so it's breaking their backs if we just scream at our screams, we will forget what it Above hatred, I will need the love. Love will elevate.
3: 5 years since the emblematic Jabaluka blockade yet now we see the reckless decision to join the Orcus military pact Nuclear powered submarines bring the very real threat of international nuclear waste dumps and an excuse for a domestic nuclear industry in Australia. Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Art Auction will celebrate decades of nuclear resistance while raising vital funds for our national nuclear free campaign work. Join us on Friday, June the 30th, from 5 p.m. till 10 p.m. with a 7:30 p.m. start of the live auction at Catalyst Social Centre, 144 Sydney Road, Coburg. There'll be bands, a bar, kids' banner painting earlier in the night, and. Lots of amazing artwork. For more information, go to melbournevo.org.au forward slash 2023 underscore art underscore auction. Bring your friends, spread the word and come along for a fun evening. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter.
2: Yeah, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we were talking to Ollie just before about uh, the students' campaign to support striking staff at Melbourne University who are fighting for their rights. Uh, We're going to uh, go now to a piece that was uh, contributed by Vivian Langford from the uh, Environment Show, which is on on Mondays at 530 uh, and uh, this is also a voice of a person who's fighting for rights, our rights and the rights of the planet. Nave O'Connor, she's a 20-year-old who was arrested uh, this week absailing off the Footscray Road bridge with Blockade Australia. And uh, this was part of a coordinated uh, uh, um, event that uh, was held in four major cities across australia they were targeting the container um, terminals um, that at our ports and uh, this report uh, is a chat with nave after the um, event
5: blockade australia have stopped the traffic in four major cities this week they've drawn attention to the coal trains at newcastle port This exported coal is obviously fueling climate chaos, but in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, climbers have been suspended over the container ports. They are not all young. One woman was 62. And they are pointing our attention to the consumerism that is also creating ecological collapse. I have Neve here. She abseiled off a bridge in Melbourne, blocking six lanes of traffic leading to the port. So welcome to the community radio, Nave. Thanks to for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, tell us, why did you do it?
0: Yeah, so the system that we call Australia um, is fueling the climate crisis and this system is, you know, extracting and exploiting on this continent. Um, and the Port of Melbourne is a major bottleneck of this system. It's... Um, part of the economy that fuels this crisis and that, you know, the system runs off profit and money. Um, and so by blocking, you know, the ro- six lanes road that goes in and out um, of Melbourne's container port, which is the largest container port in Australia, I effectively was stopping the system and halting the climate crisis in it for a second like in that moment, and that's what we need to see on a mass scale if we're ever going to effectively create the change we need to see.
5: Yeah. Well, I spent a long time yesterday watching the Blockade Australia people in all those cities on YouTube and really just long speeches, well, a very breathless one, yes. sitting way up above, very mm. high up. And um, I, I think many people instinctively feel that our system is tearing our future apart. And creating climate chaos and ecological collapse, but they can't think past the system. I mean, we had a shutdown in COVID during the pandemic. It was quite surprising to see all those aeroplanes, all those ships just stopped. But that's temporary. That's pandemic. We understand that. But this is a much bigger, longer lasting thing. What do you is it unthinkable to you that things all this system could change?
0: It's not unthinkable. That's why I do it, because I know that, like, there is no other choice. We can't live under the system that is going to kill us all. Um, The only way is to change the system. And, like, I don't have all the answers of what that system is going to look like. I'm just a 20-year-old. But people have been doing research on this for ages. There are ways we can come work together as a community to design the future that we need to see, um, one that doesn't exploit and extract and kill.
5: Hmm. But for you, we, reading some of those reports, I've also read loads of reports on various points, like little banners in the works, little things, uh, circular economy, for example. This, this, these ideas. Um, but which ones attract you? Well, I don't know if I have like a particular, you know,
0: vision for what the future looks like because I've kind of always been, you know, at a point where I could like start thinking about what the future looked like. I kind of just thought of climate change and thought there is no future. I have to fight for my future. or fight to like see anything in the future. Um, And so I haven't spent a huge amount of time visioning, but I guess like I don't have necessarily like a system thing. I just see a future that, you know, isn't there designed to extract and exploit and people are living, you know, together without oppression and, In community and I think that's like what I would love to see
5: yeah something I thought was very interesting in one of the comments um person said power resides not only in governments and institutions and they're the usual targets for activists aren't they you pester politicians and you demand things from banks and institutions but it says power resides in the movement of goods and resources via roads, ports and rails. And through disrupting these flows, the system is challenged. Do you think the system is showing signs of challenge or are they just going to arrest you and and ignore you? Well by blocking by blocking six lanes of traffic I was
0: causing a disruption which was like therefore, you know, a stop in the system, um like a like blocks the system up for a moment and there is no way they can ignore that if it continuing continues to happen, which is what's been happening across the continent for this last week. Um, you know, power does lie in these economic bottlenecks. Um, you know, that's where we have the power to create the change, which is why that's what why we've chosen to go after them and block them.
5: Right. Does it depend for you on the media picking up this
0: story? No, I think what makes these actions effective is the fact that they cause the disruption and hold the system, and that's the important thing is that we're taking action that is not just about a media story. It's about creating the effective change ourselves.
5: Yeah. Well, it's obviously very well organised to do that in four major cities simultaneously. Terrific. What, what did it feel like planning that and then achieving it? Oh, it was pretty incredible to hang there.
0: Um You know, knowing that there was lots of hard work behind the scenes going on um, and knowing that we pulled it off and that, you know, I was there blocking six lanes of traffic um, and felt very empowered to know that I was creating um, change because the only way to do that is through powerful direct
5: action. Yeah. Well, I have I hope the message is not distorted in the transmission. You know how we've had such a lot of community discussion about extinction rebellion. You know, throwing paint at famous paintings or something. It's it's that distortion that people never say. Why did you do it? What's your experience leading up to this? That this was a justifiable thing. Um, they they always leave it just vague. So, what, mm. how do you, you can overcome that?
0: Well, I think telling like a personal story, the fact that like, you know, this climate, the climate crisis has been something in my life since I was, you know, very little, grew up within the news. When I was turned 15, um, I started school striking for climate because that was the way I thought that, you know, I was going to create the change. And I saw nothing come of that when I asked of people. And so I think it's important to just like tell people that, you know, the the way we're taking action is the only way that's going to create effective change many of us have tried other ways and you know the climate crisis is the thing on our minds at the moment because it is the thing that it was going to kill us all
5: yeah i'm 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 glad it's on your mind because for so many people they're really blocking their ears and not letting it get in and i think That's right, that doing everything you can in the normal way, school striking, normal channels and all of that. So many people tell me they've done all of that. and So many people in the older age bracket tell me they really take inspiration from the young people. But I wonder if they'll support young people like you doing this Mm. much more daring, much more dramatic action and also targeting the whole system, the whole consumerist system, profit Mm. making.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. But, you know, Blockade Australia is made up of young people and old people. Today we saw, you know, a 62-year-old woman jump up on a container train in Melbourne. Like, Blockade Australia covers all demographics because the climate crisis is going to affect everyone.
5: Yeah. Okay, so what what is your story in the the background of this? What is the main experience of climate change or reading about it that, you know, throbs away for you
0: well like to be honest when I started school striking and I was like in high school I was a 15 year old and you know someone said do you want to come and organize this school strike for the climate like I think it's really important and I said yes and I started reading the news and it absolutely terrified me to like realize that we're facing all these tipping points that we're going to cause complete not a climate collapse and like kill human and non-human life and ecosystems and like everything we know and love about this planet. And I think from that moment on, it has driven me forward Um, in like continuing to make sure that, you know, we are going to beat the climate crisis. And this taking that action yesterday by abseiling off that bridge was just a moment in knowing that the system is the cause of that climate, of the climate crisis, and that that's the thing that we need to stop if we're ever going to stop climate change.
5: Yeah,
2: and uh, that was a report that was put together by uh, Vivian Langford, uh, who was talking to Neve O'Connor, who uh, was uh, part of a a simultaneous uh, action by Blockade Australia to bring awareness of the dangers that we are. eminently about to, uh, we are about to experience with climate tipping points taking us to an end game, uh, more strength to their arm. Uh, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this uh week uh we uh, spoke to Jay Coonan from the Anti Poverty Centre about the zombie cashless debit card that will not die. Peter Job from uh, Declassified Australia talked about uh the unnecessary uh valorisation of uh Modi when he visited by our prime minister. uh this is the week that was uh and uh Ollie from uh, Melbourne uni students supporting uh, National Tertiary Education Union strikers at Melbourne University with a fundraiser. We'll put the details up on the podcast. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we'll go out with Emma Donovan.
10: I can hear the storm And I can feel the
2: You enjoy listening to that podcast 3cr is a community radio station and you the listener are a part of that community right now it's our radiothon we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going we can't do it without you it's easy head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate your donations really matter